Well, welcome everybody. And thank you so much again for joining us and taking time to be a part of our series, to be a part of this Advent season with us. You know, as we've mentioned the past several weeks, uh, during this time of year, during December every year, uh, we take an additional offering that we use to give towards projects that are above and beyond what a church normally would do. And you've got a chance to read about some of those stories and hear about some of those stories over the last several weeks. And uh, those things, they span from helping homeless students or at-risk students in Beaverton, all the way to helping new churches start in Rwanda. In fact, just recently, I had the opportunity to sit here in my office with the leader of the Rwandan Foursquare Church. Church, and he just shared his gratitude for the way we've partnered with him. And you've partnered with him. You've made it possible for churches to open. Um, you've, you've got to hear about us meeting the needs of people in our community. And this week in the email that you received, you get to hear the story of work we've been doing to provide clean water to a village in Venezuela. We've been partnering with a pastor there. I won't spoil all the details. I'll trust you. You'll read that. But there's just some amazing things that we get to partner with. So uh, just this last week, Sherry and I were talking together and we were just saying, we're, we're going to spend some time over this next week praying about what we want God, uh, we want God to, to lead us in in terms of giving towards our Advent giving. And so I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing that we're doing. And that's take some time over the next few days and just ask God, is there something that you want me to give? Is there an amount above and beyond what I normally would give to help out with one of these extraordinary projects? And then if you decide that that's something you want to participate in, there are so many different ways you can give. You can text to give with the instructions on the screen. You can give online on our website. You can mail in a check. Uh, even if you drive by and drop one off. Hopefully we'll be here to, to, to receive that from you. But we want you to have as many ways possible to join us in these great things that we get to do in and around our city and in and around the world. Um, now, today we're in the fourth week of our four-week Advent series. And uh, an Advent is really about us recognizing some of our, our, our most significant needs, the things that we long for the most in our lives. And, and what we realize in the Advent season, what we're drawing our attention to are those things that we long for the most actually point us towards the person of Jesus. Um, during the celebration of his birth, we take time to lean into the truth of Jesus responding to or providing answers to these deeper questions, these deeper longings that we have in our heart. That that joy, that hope, that peace, and that love that we long for ultimately is found in him. That brings us to our final week in Advent, and that is the topic of, or the theme of, love. And this is one of the most compelling questions, I think, that faces people today. It's on your screen there, but it just says, where do I find real and true love? I think that's a question that's heard all over our culture. It's echoing through the canyons of, of our wilderness. It's through the canyons of our cities. Everyone everywhere seems to ask the question, where do I find real, true love? Now, there are other questions we're asking, especially in seasons like this one. There's stuff on the surface. There's certainly more urgent things that we need to address. There are certainly, uh, there are heady questions that people are wrestling with today. But if you think about what drives people, if you think about what people ponder or consider when they're alone, if you think about the wounds that people receive in their lives, if you think about what makes a person do something absolutely crazy, more often than not, it comes back to this idea of love. And we seem to live in a culture that has rightly identified the desperate need of our hearts. We long for love and we see this. We compose songs and we write poetry and we make movies and we write books all about love, about our experiences of love, about the pursuit of love, about the brokenness of pursuing love. All of these things reveal that we're desperate for it. We're desperate to love and we're desperate to be loved. We wanna live in this reciprocal relationship. It's woven into our DNA. 
And, and while there's things like water and oxygen, obviously, that are pretty important to living, uh, I think we look around our culture and we realize the Beatles might have had something right when they said, all you need is love. When you think about that song, when you read the lyrics, you realize there's something deeper, there's something more true about that song than we might think. And what if all we really needed was love? What if love was the key that opened the door to a meaningful life? Now, maybe you stop and you go, wait a second, Brad, you're getting lost in the weeds here. This is just a cultural phenomenon, right? This isn't the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about love the way our culture talks about love. But I want you to consider this for just a moment. If you just took the NIV, which is one of many English translations, the New International Version of the Bible, it uses the word love over 538 times. Over 500 times the word love is used in the NIV. What that means is that the word love, the topic of love, is one of the more popular words talked about, one of the more popular subjects in all of the Bible. And in fact, there's an entire book of the Old Testament dedicated to telling the story of love between this man and this woman, these two lovers. In fact, that book is so scandalous that Jewish teenagers, they weren't allowed to read it until they reached adulthood because it was so salacious because of the details of love that were included in this book called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Not only that, if you think about this, the Bible um, uses six different words to describe love. In the Hebrew language, there's ahava, there's raya, and there's dod. In the Greek language, in the New Testament, there is agape and phileo and eros, all of these words, including other words that I'm not mentioning that capture all the nuances of love. Then you get to things like the great commandment. That time that Jesus was asked by some people, what's the most important thing? What's the greatest commandment of, the, of them all? And do you know what the primary verb was of the great commandment when Jesus answered? The primary verb was love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. And if that doesn't have you convinced that love is central to the human experience, I want you to consider this. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, writing to the churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, he said this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he says this, Anyone who does not love does not love. Know God because God is love. That makes it pretty hard to miss, I think. Love one another. And oh, by the way, and if you don't love one another, if you don't love people, you probably don't know God because God is, by very definition, love. That, that's a loaded sentence that we won't dive into the depths of today because I think you get the point of it. Love is not only hardwired into the scriptures, love is hardwired into humanity. It's hardwired into our experience. So then we ask the question, we have to stop and say, well, then what's the problem? Why is there so much confusion or misinformation or frustration around the love? Why the complexity around the topic of love? And there are two that I want to address today. There's probably more, but uh, I want to address two significant ones. The first one is very personal, very individual. The second one is very cultural. The, the individual side of this, um, it, it touches in th this incredibly intimate part of our being. It, it doesn't take very long for us to realize that love is, um, love is dangerous. 
Um, children, when they're young, they actually love very recklessly. Uh, in, in our earliest days, and, and being a dad and watching my children, you just see the reckless love that children will express towards people. Um, they have no boundaries on their love. They, they give it. We give it. When we're small, we give it so freely. We receive it so freely. There's just this reckless abandon to the way that we love as children. But there's this danger that you discover in life, and that's that you can be wounded when you offer yourself recklessly in love. We can be hurt. And there are these scars that begin to develop over those wounds. And it starts to complicate all of it. And pretty soon the ability to recklessly love or extend or receive begins to shrivel inside of us. That's why I find C.S. Lewis' words on love to be so powerful. In The Four Loves, uh, which is a book that he wrote, Lewis writes this. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I think this pandemic has shown us that loveless loneliness might be safe, but that kind of isolation is not a safe place for humans to exist. There is a torment to that kind of isolation, which is why no matter how we've ever been wounded, there is still a part of us that craves it. There's still a part of us that longs for it, which was what brings us to the problem of culture. Um, Oscar Wilde said this. Oscar Wilde once said, the heart was made to be broken. And I wholeheartedly disagree with Oscar Wilde. The heart was actually made to be full. The heart was actually made to be whole because of love. What's broken isn't the heart. What's broken isn't its its pattern of, of moving in a particular way. What's broken is the way the world has told us to find love. The pursuit of love, when we think about this, it's cluttered with all of this cultural mythology and incomplete understanding of the human soul. Society has in some way painted this picture of love and romance. And, and, and in its doing this, the greatest accomplishment of it is really that it just leaves us disappointed. I mean, what, what culture tells us love and romance looks like for most people leaves us disenfranchised. Our, our cultural examples, our teachings of love, they're sort of fractured. Um, maybe they're shallow, but in some ways they're downright destructive. They objectify human beings. They, they confuse lust with love. They're, they're driven by impulse and emotion. They're fickle. They're, they're broken. And worst of all, they're not rooted in reality. In the end, if we take our cultural norms for love, if we take the, the, the expectations we have for love and we place them on people, there is enormous pressure on those we live with to live up to these unrealistic expectations of love. A few years ago, I read this book. Somebody recommended it to me. A young adult said, you should read this. It'll tell you a lot about what we're dealing with in our culture today. It was a comedian and public personality named Aziz Ansari. And he wrote this book called Modern Romance, kind of differentiating between what it was like to find romance and love 50 or 60 years ago versus what it's like today in the digital age. And it was his take on just the complexity of what this requires. 
And, and he outlines all of the different details and it was very informative and it certainly told me a lot of things about culture. But one of the things I noticed is that there was language that was laced within his pages that revealed incredible expectations that he had. Amidst his observations, you discover his expectations. And I want you to listen to this one excerpt that I, that I found in his book. He says this, he says, the soulmate marriage is very different from the companionate marriage. It's not about finding someone decent to start a family with. It's about finding the perfect person whom you truly deeply love, someone you want to share the rest of your life with. And a little later, he continues, he says, but searching for a soulmate takes a long time and requires enormous emotional investment. The problem is that this search for the perfect person can generate a lot of stress. Oh, really? <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying in this? I mean, he's talking about this whole subject, but laced within this, he's, he's referring to the perfect person. How would you like to be on the other end of those expectations, knowing that when somebody found you, they thought you were perfect? That might be nice for a week until you revealed your imperfections. I mean, we have no idea how long somebody's going to stay the perfect person if the perfect person is what we're looking for. But there's a second problem here. The perfect person he describes as being your soul mate. Now, there's one thing that's right in what he's saying here. Aziz is identifying the source of our longing for love, and it is indeed our soul. It is our soul that longs for love. But our soul's mate was never intended to be another mixed up, broken person that we somehow hitch ourselves to. I remember years ago, I was watching... Uh, a TV version of this Tom Cruise movie called Jerry Maguire. And there was this scene where people are interacting in an elevator and they're interacting via sign language. And Jerry asked the co-star who's there with him in the elevator, he asked what they're saying because she could read the language. And in that moment, she said that the man tells the woman, you complete me. And that phrase becomes the phrase of the movie. It's the phrase that Tom Cruise uses in the end to win her over. He says to her, you complete me. But the only problem is this. You don't need another human being to be complete. That's what our culture has said. You need somebody else. You need this perfect person. You need a soulmate. But that is simply not true. So what does all of this mean? Well, it means that most of us are walking through this life a bit wounded and longing for something called love. And Jesus knows this. In a world that, that longs to fill this vacancy with love in our hearts, we begin to see something in Christ that reveals the truth, the, the real thing that can fill that void. This is the power of the Advent season. It, there, there's this, this moment during Advent when we talk about hope and joy and, and peace and then love, where it's like we just suddenly remember, oh yeah, that's right. That's what Jesus was supposed to do. He's supposed to satisfy this thing. When you look at the birth of Jesus through the lens of love, all of it now begins to make sense. Some other person wasn't supposed to satisfy this thing in my soul. He is. He's the one that satisfies this. Think about your expectations of love for just a moment and then consider that in Jesus, we have all of these beautiful dimensions of what we think love should be. You know, all of the ways we would define love, Jesus embodies those things. He personifies those things. And think about presence, for example. Love craves presence. It thrives on proximity. Um, some people, I've heard people say that their primary love language is time. It's this whole idea of presence. 
Um, in fact, just today, I, I stumbled on a remarkable story from this week. This is uh, absolutely, truly remarkable. This week, there's a Scotsman named Dale McLaughlin. He's 28 years old. He rode a jet ski this week across the Irish Sea to be with his girlfriend. Now, you need to understand that he did not own a jet ski before this moment. He had never ridden a jet ski before this moment. He bought a jet ski to ride across the Irish Sea to see this girlfriend that he recently started dating. He made the 25-mile journey across a treacherous sea in winter. He thought it would take him about 40 minutes. It took him four and a half hours because the seas turned rough. He made it to the other side with 10 minutes left of fuel. And then get this, once he made ground, he walked 15 miles to his girlfriend's house. Now, unfortunately, there are really strict COVID regulations in this particular part of the world. On the Isle of Man, where his girlfriend lives, uh, he wasn't supposed to visit there, which is why he bought the jet ski to go visit her in the first place. And so when it was discovered that he had illegally come to the island, he got a four-week jail sentence. And so he's spending the next four weeks in jail. And uh, I was reading this today. I absolutely love it. And the, the article said this. One of his family members was, was being interviewed by the Daily Mail. And the, the family member said, the craziest thing is that he can't even swim. A family source tells the Daily Mail about Glaughlin, describing him as a nice lad, but thick as a brick. <laughs> I just love that. But love is always connected to presence. He has this relationship and he knows that I love her and that love drives me to be with her, to be present with her. If there's one thing that's clear about God through the story of Jesus is that we can have a present love. Jesus, the incarnate God, is present on the scene. That's the whole point of the story is that God comes to be with us. He enters the human story. He joins us in our journey. He comes alongside of us. He replaces the temple as the point of reference or the point of connection with God. And he says, now you connect to God through me. And it's no longer this geographic-centered God or this, this God that's connected to some ethnicity or some nationality. Now we have a God who is with us. We have a God in the flesh. We so easily forget the supernatural realities of, of our followership of Jesus, that there are supernatural dynamics to this. But Jesus himself said this. He said, I will always be with you. In fact, in the book of John, there's this, this time period that's recorded that's between the final meal of Jesus with his disciples and his being arrested and carried off to his crucifixion. And there's a conversation with them and there's a prayer for them. And the whole thing is laced with this idea that Jesus says, I'm going to send you my spirit to be with you, to comfort you, to come alongside of you, to be your helper. He's with us. He fulfilled that promise. Read the book of Acts and we see the outpouring of that spirit upon humanity. We can know the presence and the comfort of Jesus no matter where we are. It's all about presence. In fact, Christian history is filled with moments when Jesus has met people in their solitude. My history is filled with moments when Jesus has met me in my solitude. When I thought I was alone, Jesus was there. It's a present love. It's also a desperate love. And I know we don't often think about God being desperate. And it's not in the sense that God's flustered or that God doesn't know what to do or he doesn't have the resources. 
But there's this, this desperation to God's love. When someone is hopelessly, deeply in love, like jet ski guy, one is also desperate to be with and to connect with that person's object of affection. Um, this, this guy was so desperate. Think about this from God's perspective, though. John 3.16 reveals the desperation of God, where, where literally John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I know maybe you've seen that too many times on the back of a football field or, or on somebody's car, but can you just take a moment and capture the unreserved selfless act that God carries out and all of it is designated to solicit this response of love from us. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm giving my son to you so that you'll know that I love you and so that you will love me back. How far was God willing to go to know, for us to know that we're loved? All we have to do is look at this. All we have to do is look at the cross. But even at the birth of Jesus, we are faced with this sacrificial love. Paul, um, he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's unpacking how followers of Jesus are supposed to treat one another and, uh, and live towards one another in love. But in the process, he brings something to light that reveals the nature of what took place that moment when Jesus is conceived. Listen to, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, In your relationships with one another— have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he's going to continue and show us what the mindset of Jesus is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. He, he travels this unimaginable distance, relationally, to connect with us. He risks everything to be with us, and he holds nothing back. He says, there's nothing that I'm not willing to give. He is desperate. There's a risk to the love of Jesus, and it is a selfless love. He doesn't come demanding that we identify certain aspects of him. He doesn't use his power to receive riches or, or, or worship or favor. He demands nothing of us, and he made himself nothing. When you think about Jesus in his life, what does he do? He shows up in humility, and then he travels as a vagabond. He has no place to call his own. When he's tired and exhausted, he continues to heal people. When he's thirsty and hungry, he continues to teach people. When he's murdered, even on the cross, he continues to pray for people, the people that were tormenting him. He realized that if love ever put that kind of pressure if our desire for love ever tried to place that kind of pressure on another human being, another human being would crush under the pressure. They would crush under the expectations. But if you put, if love and your longing puts that kind of pressure on Jesus, his love expands. His love withstands that kind of pressure. My, my friend Steve Mitchell said it this way. He said, Jesus is like a godly tsunami of love, pushing back all the resistance in his advance. It is not the projection of power that pulses the charge. It is the magnetic attraction of a completely selfless love. 
So let's go back to Jet Ski Guy. Why do we find Jet Ski Guy and his story so compelling and so attractive? Because it's hardwired into the human psyche, into the human heart, that real love goes the distance. And no one has ever gone the distance that Jesus has gone for you. You're loved. Everything about this story says you are loved, loved more than you could ever imagine, loved more than you could ever dream. There are depths of love that you have just begun to dip the toe of your foot into. We longed for love. We looked for love in all the wrong places. And then in Jesus, we find love. Jesus found a way to us so that we could know love. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are as you watch this. I don't know if you've been wounded. I don't know if me even bringing up the subject of love causes you to flinch, causes you to, to, to callous and to harden your hearts. I, I don't know if you're lonely. I don't know if there's a part of you that wonders if you'll ever experience or know the kind of love our culture has talked about. I, I don't know if you're love starved and you're in the middle of a crowd, if you're surrounded by people, but you feel desperately alone and unloved. I don't know any of those things. I don't know where this finds you today, but I do know this. When you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to the God who is love. You say yes to knowing and receiving and experiencing the greatest love that humanity will ever know. And that is what your heart wants the most. So right now, I'm going to invite the band to, to return with me here, and they're going to close us in a song. And, uh, and then in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to come up and I'm going to offer the benediction like I do every week and just pray a blessing over you. But as the band comes right now, I just, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in this time to just take an assessment of your own heart. And maybe you feel loveless. Maybe you feel love-starved. Maybe you feel like you've been used or wounded, whatever your situation is. I want you to take a moment and just think about the condition or the state of love in your heart. And I want you to place that right before Jesus in this moment. And I want you to allow him to speak to those feelings, allow him to speak to those longings, allow him to heal you of the wounds and, 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 and of the, the expectations that weren't met by other people. Allow Jesus to care for you with his love in this time. Let's worship together.
So now, as we close our service, I offer this to you. May you be men and women who acknowledge and recognize your deep heart's longing to love and be loved. And in that same moment, may you see and recognize that as your heart cries out for love, the answer to that longing is found in that cry of a child in a manger. And may you know that the God of this universe loves you deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Please know this week that you are deeply loved. God loves you and we love you. We are looking so forward to the days ahead, doing life together with you, learning to be a loving community of Jesus. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you guys on Christmas Eve.